Well, the first thing I suppose um, introducing uh, this talk, um, just to begin with a, a question, and uh, that is why bother? Why bother uh, with Jesus and uh, the Jesus story? Well, apart from enjoying myself uh, when I've not been at a meeting uh, today, listening to Radio 3 and uh, broadcast of Christmas music from Latvia and Russia and Greece and you name it, all over uh, Europe. The fact of the matter is that um, billions uh, of people are notionally uh, uh, Christian. And within that, there are many, 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 many millions um, who are devout uh, believers. So I think formally, uh, there, are, there are well over a billion Catholics, uh, for example. Uh, but also, it's just worth saying, isn't it, that, um, okay, um, most of us here, um, I would guess, out of the 14 um, uh, people now um, signed up for this talk, most of us will live in Europe. Um, and Europe, at least in recent years, certainly in, in Britain, you know, the numbers going to church, um, has constantly uh, declined. And um, although, um, you know, still many people will sign themselves on some census form, if they have religion, they'll tick Christian or something along those lines. The fact of the matter is that uh, religion is still a potent force, not least um, in the United uh, States. So it's not that Trump, for example, uh, the last president uh, was in any way that I know of um, religious. Uh, on the other hand, his vice president, Mike Pence, um, is one of these people, you know, who believe in the second coming, um, you know, believe in, um, you know, the word of the, the word of the Bible is the word of uh, God. And if we think about um, the next presidential election, while it's possible uh, that Trump might uh, run, it's also quite conceivable uh, that we uh, end up with um, what I would call a Christian fanatic um, um, in, in the White House. Um, you know, if, if you're in America, uh, that is quite a conceivable um, um, outcome uh, of an election. And if you think about uh, their belief system, um, if it was to be put into practice, it, it's quite chilling. Uh, and obviously not only for those that live in the Middle East, um, but on a global scale, simply because the United States is the global hegemon uh, and is armed with uh, apocalyptic um, nuclear weapons. Anyway, um, Again, just scratching my head and um, saying, okay, you know, I've been surrounded wall to wall today with um, Christian songs and, uh, you know, singing about the nativity and the, the Jesus story. Just worthwhile thinking about it um, historically um, and just note the fact that the Christian fanatic uh, Oliver Cromwell uh, and uh, those around him, i.e., the Puritans, well knew uh, that <laughs> this Christmas story uh, that has been um, celebrated year after year after year, seemingly uh, for um, 
was it 2021 years or let's give it a wait for the guy to die sort of idea but you get the idea let's say uh, near to for 2000 he knew it was all a load of nonsense and uh, he knew uh, that Jesus wasn't born on Christmas Day. Um, you know, he knew uh, that the date was plumped on, I, I think, seven, well, I think it was 400 years after, um, something like that, 400 years after the supposed event, uh, it was plumped on um, in the Vatican, um, and it was designed to steal uh, the Roman Saturnalia, and of course the Roman Saturnalia itself um, was designed to still previous uh, religions. But the point would be, here we are, we're at the end of the year uh, of where we get the darkest uh, days. And in certainly in our sort of climate, uh, the masses go out traditionally and um, look forward to the new year. There's very little to do agriculturally. So they have a party. And basically the Christians move in on this. And as I said, Oliver Cromwell was well aware uh, of this, along with loads of other saint days, in reality, were stolen from previous religions. Either way, um, because he knew that and he thought this was all um, idolatrous, he actually banned uh, Christmas, uh, which, of course, didn't go down well, not only amongst Catholics, but amongst the masses, because for them, uh, as I said, uh, Christmas was a time for enjoyment, a time for celebration, a time to get drunk, to have a, a party. And indeed, if you look at the pre-Cromwellian calendar uh, in Britain, you know, um, there were a huge number of saint days. And uh, as I said, this was a time to, um, you know, stop work and have fun. And so the Puritans come in and obviously they represent, from a Marxist point of view, a capitalist force. And they're not interested in partying. Uh, they're interested in getting people to work and doing the right thing. Either way, uh, the point would be, uh, and this is, the, this is what I'm trying to uh, say, is that Christmas is a largely mythologized um, uh, story. Uh, and it's true, as I understand it, uh, that if you take the wee freeze, uh, which is a sort of Protestant um, sect up in Scotland, that's what they call the wee freeze, the free Presbyterians up in Scotland, uh, they still refuse uh, to celebrate at Christmas because they know uh, that it's uh, a myth, that it's made up. Of course, that still presumes uh, that what they believe in, um, from my angle at least, is equally mythological. Okay, so what I'm going to do um, with this talk is to try uh, to separate uh, the myth from what is probably um, reality. Uh, so what I'm going to put forward in terms of my argument, of course, isn't the truth. Well, we all never know the truth, but I think we can arrive at something uh, near uh, the truth uh, that will actually cast a light um, on uh, the Christian religion uh, and, of course, the individual uh, that sits at the centre um, of uh, the Christian religion. Now, it's, it has been argued in the past um, and I don't dismiss it in any absolute sense uh, that Jesus himself was a completely made up uh, figure, uh, that he never existed. And it's certainly true 
um, that if you take contemporary sources, which we have, which tend to be very fragmentary, but nonetheless, uh, we do have plenty uh, of ancient sources, uh, that no contemporary, um, when he was alive, mentioned Jesus. So there he is, according to the story, um, you know, his, his, uh, his birth is accompanied uh, by the massacre of the innocents. Remember, um, King Herod uh, was told this prophecy by the wise men who were following this star uh, that a new king of Israel uh, was going to be born. And he basically said, well, I'm, I'm king of Israel. So, uh, well, if a new king's going to be born, I'll kill them all. So he orders the killing of all these young uh, firstborn uh, babies. Meanwhile, uh, we have the story that uh, an angel came down and told um, Mary and Joseph to scuttle out of it. We're also told uh, that at the age of 12, uh, Jesus went to the Jerusalem temple and uh, engaged in highly sophisticated uh, theological uh, disputes with the, the high priests and out and beat, and beat them. Uh, we're also told uh, that um, the Jesus's first miracle uh, was to turn water into wine, uh, as well as raising the dead and uh, himself having been killed, having gone to hell, uh, that's what it says in the Bible, rose uh, um, back uh, to life um, and um, basically carried on <laughs> performing uh, miracles for those three days. And um, I could carry on. Now, all I can say is, is, is in spite of all those fantastic events, um, no one in the Roman world, no one uh, in the contemporary Jewish world said, bloody hell, look what this guy can do. Uh, look at this uh, uh, guy. Um, we've got to start writing um, down his story. Um, no, nothing, nothing of the sort. And so just to... Uh, make the point. Um, here's a book uh, that's sort of contemporary uh, with Jesus. It's called uh, The Jewish Antiquities, and it's by a guy called Josephus. And Josephus was one of the military leaders. He was an aristocrat. He was one of the military leaders of the Jewish revolution, which happened, you know, if we believe the, the Bible story, something like 30 years after uh, the death of Jesus. And um, anyway, um, the point would be uh, that he defected uh, from the Jewish side and went over to the Romans. And um, while he was um, in favor, uh, he wrote two famous uh, books. And one was called, got it here somewhere. Um, oh, I've got it somewhere. Anyway, one was called The Jewish War which was basically his experience of um, the Jewish uprising, the siege of uh, Jerusalem, where he stood outside uh, the walls. And this, the Jewish antiquities, is basically an account of Jewish beliefs going back to Adam and uh, coming up to his own time. And what's interesting about it, it, presumably, is that some medieval priest, this was called also um, uh, for many, many years, the second Bible, right? So this is an important book because uh, Christians looked at it and found confirmation of their ideas. Um, what we now know is there is a mention uh, of Jesus uh, in this book, 
but we now know from you know computer analysis uh, left but logic also uh, tells us uh, that this was put in this was inserted um, somewhere in the, me the medieval period so you've got a passage in here uh, about uh, the Jews killing um, uh, this guy called Jesus who was truly the son of God and Voltaire for example commenting um, on this book says Josephus just could never write that it's just impossible uh, that he could write it so you know Voltaire simply knowing you know Jewish the Jewish thought world rejected it uh, as a forgery um, so the, the question is why insert it well as I said you know if you're a Christian and all these miracles are happening it's quite annoying isn't it uh, that say you know a few decades after this uh, son of God was on earth walking about performing all these miracles, someone like Josephus doesn't even notice him, doesn't even mention him. But what we've got, <laughs> strangely, uh, in this book, which isn't a forgery, is mention of a guy called James, right? James, who's head of a party in Jerusalem uh, called the Nazarenes, right? Um, a very pious um, sect, uh, uh, this one is. And um, this guy, James, he, he's actually executed. He's killed, I think, the, in, the, in the 50s. So this is before uh, the Jewish uh, revolution. But the ideas of James, uh, the ideas of the Nazarenes are certainly seen by Josephus as laying or a part of uh, the laying down uh, of the ideology uh, that the Jewish revolution is fought out uh, with. In other words, you know, ideas um, aren't just something we think, they're also something we fight out uh, interests uh, uh, with. So what we also have uh, with Josephus, uh, which is very useful to us, is a description of what he calls uh, the parties uh, that existed in pre-revolutionary um, Judea. Um, he describes the royal faction, the Herodians. Um, these are people that uh, the Romans put in. Um, these, these are people that are only semi-Jewish. Uh, they come from the South. Um, they're basically um, Greekized, Hellenized. Um, the ancient world in the Mediterranean is crudely dividable into two, a Greek-speaking East uh, and a Latin-speaking West. So even in the Roman Empire, you still have that division. So in Palestine, you don't just have Jews, uh, you have an awful lot of um, Greeks or people influenced by a Greek uh, culture, which goes back to Alexander the Great and continues really until um, you know uh, Muslim the Muslim uh, uh, takeover. Anyway, my main point is uh, that these people are seen uh, by ordinary Jewish people uh, in Judea as convent uh, convent uh, uh, breakers. The, these people are seen as mixing with foreigners. Um, as ritualistically um, unclean. We also have, in terms of his uh, description of the groupings uh, that existed at the time, 
uh, a party that he calls the Sadducees. These are the high priests. How many high priests were there? Um, roughly speaking, 1,500 in Jerusalem uh, itself. Remember, we have a religion uh, here that's centered um, on one temple. And we can get into an argument about uh, synagogues and um, all the rest of it. But we have a, a, a temple cult uh, which would resemble um, something like a slaughterhouse. So, you know, you're meant to pilgrim, pilgrimage uh, to Jerusalem. You're meant to sacrifice animals uh, when you get there. And the, the, the priests are in charge of sacrificing animals and, and taking uh, tithes. But we also know that we have a very rapid uh, differentiation uh, amongst the priest caste. Uh, and we have basically a dozen families seizing control uh, of the priesthood and the tithes. But we also have a situation where the Romans are seizing hold of um, who, who's going to be the high priest. Um, you know, and uh, we have the, the guy before Pontius Pilate, for example, getting rid of three high priests. So in terms of what these guys thought, we don't know, but we can hazard a guess. They didn't believe that the dead would rise at the end of the days. Uh, they didn't believe in uh, miracles. They believed in the world balance of forces. And they didn't think uh, that little Judea uh, could take on and beat uh, the Roman Empire. So from their point of view, they were reluctant collaborators with Rome, not enthusiasts uh, like, um, um, you know, the royal family and uh, the, the Hellenized uh, section of the population. But basically, it was a shrug of the shoulders well, we recognize um, you know, who's in charge. We recognize the balance of power here. We've got to collaborate with these people, but we don't like it. So on the one side, you've got collaboration uh, with the Romans. And on the other hand, you've got them resisting um, those below. Uh, they, they don't like notions of democracy, if we can use that word. Uh, they don't like the masses. Uh, these people consider themselves more than a cut above um, you know, the common um, herd. Josephus also then describes the Pharisees. Now, if you read Karl Kortsky and his Foundations of uh, Christianity, and if you read this very, very good book, I have to say that it was an eye-opener to me. This is a guy called Hyman Maccabee. Um, they view the Pharisees as what they would call the popular party. Um, um, and it's, it's certainly the case uh, that whereas the Sadducees, the high priests, had reduced themselves basically to a dead religion, uh, that their only job was to preside over a frozen, um, frozen set of ceremonies and, and to read out a, a series of texts uh, that had been frozen uh, with the returnees uh, from Babylon um, many, many uh, years uh, before. So the, the Pharisees were very skilled at uh, debating the law and bending it uh, to fit the needs uh, of life. On the other hand, and I have to say, I was convinced by his account, uh, this guy, um, I'm going to be waving around a few books uh, this evening. This is Robert Eisenman. Who's he? He was one of the first people uh, to translate and he took the lead in leaking 
the Dead Sea Scrolls. If um, some of you old enough might remember the sort of storm uh, that that caused. Here's a um, um, translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Catholic Church sat on these texts that are being discovered in caves um, in southern um, um, Israel by some um, shepherd, I think shepherd boy. And it turned out that these uh, scrolls were religious and they go back basically to the time of Jesus and before and a little bit after. Um, the scrolls seem to have been uh, um, squirreled away in these caves, roughly speaking, something like 66 um, AD, a significant event. This is the beginning of the Jewish revolution. And it seems that the community that wrote those documents uh, was um, wiped out or, or sought refuge in Jerusalem. But basically that was the end of its uh, um, uh, life. Well, Robert Eisenman argues uh, that the Pharisees weren't the popular party. He, he, you know, he looks at the Dead Sea Scrolls and he says, no, these people weren't the popular party. Again, what we've got is collaborators. Uh, these people are after smooth things. These people don't want to confront uh, the Romans. Uh, these people are actually um, um, people uh, that uh, are against uh, the popular interest um, um, of the masses. Interestingly, having described the... Um, um, the various uh, factions, um, I think he calls them the three parties, he actually says, well, there is a fourth, the fourth philosophy, and this is the most interesting section um, um, of his description. The rest are pretty, pretty short and pretty crisp. Uh, actually, it turns out the fourth philosophy um, is the most extensive, and the reason he can write um, so fully uh, about the fourth philosophy is actually because although he was an aristocrat, he seems to have been an initiate of a party that he calls the Essenes um, in his youth. And he seems to be writing about them because I would guess uh, this will be entertaining uh, for his Latin um, speaking um, audience. Uh, he's writing in Latin, he's not writing in um, obviously Hebrew or Amharic, I don't think he was writing in Greek, first of all, so he's writing for the entertainment of the um, upper classes in Rome. Anyway, he describes these people living out in camps um, in the desert and living what he calls, quote, unquote, uh, a religious and communist life. Uh, they share everything in common. Uh, they elect their leadership. They don't have sex, apparently. Um, although some other groups in that uh, thought world uh, do, but only for purposes of uh, making children. What's also interesting uh, about these people is they're organized into tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Whether the thousand is real or not, um, I don't know. Uh, but they're organized along the lines of um, uh, a figure from what we will call, or I would call, um, because of my cultural background, the Old Testament, a guy called Gideon, uh, who fought um, um, uh, the enemies of um, the people of Israel, I think with a basically a handful of people, uh, but with um, legions of angels. Now, if we look at uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, it's not the same uh, group uh, as the Essenes, 
but it really is. Um, it's the equivalent, I suppose, of the difference between uh, the Socialist Party um, in England and Wales and um, um, I don't know what you want to call it, the SWP or the ISG or Workers' Power of old, or they still exist, don't they? Workers' Power. So it's within that sort of, um, in that sort of, uh, um, how should you put it, body uh, of thought. And what we have in the Dead Sea uh, Scrolls is clearly the idea that we're organizing um, along military lines, um, waiting to overthrow what the Dead Sea Scrolls called the Kittim. Uh, and the Kittim quite clearly uh, from the context is the Romans. And basically what they believe at the end of times, which will be coming very, very soon, um, God will intervene in human affairs and uh, the people of Israel will be organized, all the pure will be organized in military units. They will take on uh, the Romans and with uh, the military aid of the angels, they will massacre uh, the Roman armies and henceforth um, God's will uh, will rule. The people of Israel are the vanguard and what they have, depending on which text you look at, is either one messiah or two. Sometimes the messiah plays a religious role. On the other hand, another messiah in the text uh, plays the, the role of leading the army. Now, in terms of um, uh, this fourth uh, philosophy, uh, Eisman argues uh, that this is actually uh, the popular party. And within the popular party, as well as having uh, the Essenes, and the people that wrote the um, Dead Sea Scrolls, which are a sort of faction of a faction, something along those lines. We also have um, what he calls the Jesus Party or the Nazarenes. And the Nazarenes, uh, the name doesn't come, uh, according to him, uh, from the little town in Galilee uh, that Jesus was supposed to live in. It basically means pure. And he, his argument that uh, uh, if there, you know, if there was a, a Nazareth at the time, it gets the name uh, via the party, as opposed to the party getting the name uh, from the town. Either way, this party calls itself by many different names, the poor, um, the pure, the zealot, um, the Nazarenes, i.e., you know, again, a purity uh, uh, type uh, name. And his basic argument is uh, that if we look not only at um, uh, this one, uh, the Jewish antiquities, but other literature immediately after uh, this was written, and it's an extensive uh, literature. His argument is uh, we actually have James here, a description of him leading um, the Jesus party. Um, he's the brother of Jesus. We have a description of his uh, religious uh, outlook, and it's uh, highly xenophobic. He doesn't like foreigners. Um, he doesn't tolerate people, you know, uh, breaking the Sabbath or breaking the dietary uh, codes. They worship uh, in the temple. But basically what they claim to be is we are pure priests, as opposed to the collaborators with Rome. And we know um, not only from this book, but from other sources, that at least on one occasion, uh, James takes over um, the Yom Kippur um, ceremony in the temple. 
So he seems to have acted at least at one point uh, in his career as a dual power high priest. He might have done that on several occasions, but you know the, the design of the temple, um, you have one room where God is meant to dwell and only the high priest can go in once a year. This is something uh, James did. Remember the story of um, the Romans going into the temple and uh, they go into this holy of holies and they open the doors and their, their response was, bugger me, there's nothing here. Where if you went to a Roman temple or Greek temple, you'd have a big statue of Jove or Jupiter or Athena. In the Jewish temple, it's, <laughs> it's empty. And they say, what the hell are these people worshiping? Where's their God? Either way, um, that's James uh, for you. Um, well, what we have is not James participating in the Jewish uh, revolution, uh, but people who are of his party are participating um, in it. Um, we know all about uh, the Jewish revolution. You know, in modern Jerusalem, you can go up to the walls, um, you know, that uh, the pious still uh, pray before. Uh, you can go and look at the remains of the temple. You can go to the Temple Mount. Um, you can go to Masada, uh, of where they took their last stand uh, in AD 74 and see the Roman earthworks uh, that enabled them to besiege and eventually take uh, this desert fortress. So we know a great deal um, about this time. But also what we have afterwards is the beginning um, of what... I think we can start to legitimately uh, call the Christian religion. And the founder of that Christian religion, of course, isn't uh, Jesus, uh, because if we know James, uh, the argument is we know Jesus, we know his brother. Um, and what these people are is pious Orthodox Jews of the time. Um, ultra Orthodox uh, from their point of view. Um, uh, and they are people who are capable of coming up with new stories, uh, inventing um, stories that deal with their contemporary uh, period. So who's the founder um, of um, what modern Christianity, uh, the, the religion? Well, of course, the founder of uh, modern Christianity is Paul, um, who previously was named Saulus. And uh, you can read all about him in the Bible, the Holy Bible. And again, it's just worthwhile just making a point about this book. Well, the bulk of it, of course, is what, um, from my culture, you'd call the Old Testament. Um, so what we have in terms of the arrangement of the Bible, at least my version of it, is the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you all know, uh, that. And then we have the Acts. And what's worthwhile knowing is that the Acts are actually the first to be written. Um, they're the earliest uh, um, document, not the last, you know, the, the sort of at the end of the book. Uh, actually, if you're going to arrange the book chronologically, uh, you would put the Acts, I'm talking about the New Testament, you'll put the Acts first. Um, instead of at the end, right? What's interesting about the Acts 
um, is, is, well, from our point of view now, is the honesty um, of it. This is meant to be the work of Paul. Well, you can, you need to take that, not with a pinch, uh, but with the view that anything that was inconvenient might well have been overwritten. Um, or on the other hand, and I think this is also um, a factor, what had become so well known uh, uh, to, the, um, to this party, and I'll leave aside an exact description of it uh, for the moment, couldn't be changed. So for example, as well as having the four um, canonical um, uh, gospels that we all know, uh, we also have um, a work by James. And what's interesting about the work by James, for example, is that it's the most um, violent uh, in terms of its class hatred of the poor for the rich. Uh, it's most violent uh, in terms of what's going to happen to those, it didn't use terms like that, but the rich bastards when we get our revenge on them. This is what God is going to do to you unless you repent and give us all your wealth, you are cursed and you're cursed to, you know, um, hellfire. And only, only the poor are blessed, right? You recognize the sort of um, poor <laughs> who will inherit the world, the poor in spirit, <laughs> one of these. What the fuck is that? What's the poor in spirit? Someone who's a bit depressed. No, James is quite explicit. It's the poor uh, that will inherit the world and we will get revenge on the rich. So what's interesting about uh, Paul and the Acts um, is his description, his self-description of um, chasing the James party as it's fleeing Jerusalem um, in order to persecute them. Right? So he, he's, he's participating uh, in this persecution of uh, the Jesus party. And you know the story. I mean, I, I obviously don't accept it, but this is his version of it. You all know on the road to Jerusalem, he sees the light, he goes blind, and um, he sees visions of Jesus. And he becomes, well, I use the word a convert. Okay, so you don't need to take that particular story. Either way, yes, he becomes a convert. Um, that's his version of it. So he goes from Saulus, the persecutor, the pro-Roman, pro-aristocratic persecutor of the Jesus party. He sees the light. And then his own description is he goes to Jerusalem and he meets the heads uh, of the church and he meets James, the brother of the Lord. And he also meets um, other brothers of the Lord. And we're not talking about, um, you know, like uh, we and the CPGB, our brothers and sisters together, he's talking about biology. Uh, Jesus was the oldest brother and James was acting as regent because unlike earlier uh, revolutionary leaders uh, that uh, you know, litter the pages um, of um, um, the Jewish wars of Josephus, so there are all sorts of bandits, there are all sorts of zealots, uh, there are all sorts of revolutionary uprisings, some of which um, are successful temporarily. Uh, what we have in the person of Jesus is the story, uh, yeah, our leader was killed, uh, our leader was uh, buried, uh, but our leader rose from the dead 
and at the moment lives up in heaven and you can't get him. And we're here carrying on his fight, carrying on his message. Uh, there are similar stories in the Old Testament with various prophets. But what was significant uh, about uh, Jesus, and uh, I haven't mentioned this yet, what was significant about him is he wasn't just uh, someone who was aspiring to become a prophet king um, of Israel. You know, you had that with, um, from my memory, Saul, David, Solomon, these were prophet uh, kings. So it's in the, you know, in the myth mythologized history uh, of this people. What he was proclaiming himself uh, as is the Messiah uh, king, the last uh, king. And what he meant by that wasn't as it has it in uh, the so-called New Testament. What he has it is that um, he is the legitimate king of Israel, as opposed to this um, pro-Roman upstart who's been installed, um, you know, um, in the palace um, in Jerusalem. And he uh, is claiming to be directly of the line of David, the first great uh, king um, um, of um, uh, Israel. He claims to be biologically um, of that line. So it's a bit like um, some peasant, um, some Anglo-Saxon peasant under the Normans uh, claiming I'm really uh, the son of um, King Harald uh, that was killed in um, Hastings in 1066. So don't you know he had a son? Um, um, I'm his grandson. I'm the real king uh, of England. But of course, what Jesus was uh, proclaiming and what his party was proclaiming is that um, this was some sort of holy, um, um, div divinely blessed uh, royal house, the revolutionary vanguard that would liberate all humanity. And therefore, it's interesting that two testaments uh, um, um, of uh, you know, the, the Christian uh, Bible have a long genealogy of Jesus. And obviously, we all know who his father was, don't we? It wasn't the big G. It was the big J, Joseph, and Joseph was of the line of David, and they trace him back all through these people, uh, all the way to David, and then after that, all the way back to Adam, because we're all related to Adam, um, aren't we? But we're not all related to David, and another version um, has a different genealogy, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, we're not taking the genealogy seriously, but what we're, what we're saying is that they took the genealogy seriously, because of the claim of Jesus to be of uh, the royal house um, of uh, David. And so, again, this is just worthwhile investigating, therefore, uh, this strange story um, in, in the New Testament uh, about Jesus's birth, uh, which is clearly an invention. Remember, according to the story, the Romans, for some unknown, bizarre reason, decide to call a uh, decide to uh, conduct a census well there's nothing strange in that you know we've got the doomsday book and other such documents and this is done for purposes of taxation how many people have i got what estates have they got what can i screw out of them but according to the bible what happens is you're all meant to go back uh, to your uh, place of birth <laughs> imagine that i mean even in the ancient world that would have been a crazy uh, thing to do but it, it allows uh, the writers of this book uh, to say 
that um, um, Jesus and Joseph came from this town called Bethlehem, uh, which is the historic capital uh, of the Davidic uh, uh, line. And so, you know, again, you have in the Bible, when Jesus uh, comes into Jerusalem um, in his final uh, days, the crowds are greeting him as son of Davis, Hosanna, save us, right? And he goes to the temple. Well, that seems to ring true. And if we look at, as I said, at the Acts, this is what these people believe, that, yeah, Jesus has been killed, but he's up there and he's waiting for us. And what's interesting about the Acts is the hostility um, that Paul finds uh, because he's a, a previous persecutor. Do we really trust this guy? And basically, he cuts a deal. He must have been a very talented uh, individual. He cuts a deal. Uh, with James and basically what it is look Paul as you're now calling yourself that's a romanized word but you, you get the point Paulus or whatever your name happens to be you go off and proselytize the message you take the message to non-Jews because we want all good people coming in but your job is to convert them they're a second they're second rate uh, they're not uh, top grade vanguard material nevertheless we would welcome these people as uh, fellow believers, you go off um, and you go out and win these people uh, to the idea of Jesus. And lo and behold, that's what he does. And uh, you've got his various letters to the Corinthians and to whoever else it happens to be. And he goes out and converts people. He's persecuted. He has to get away here. He has to do this and that there. Either way, after some time, he comes back and um, the story about him has already arrived. And this, again, is his own, own description. He arrives in Jerusalem and he is not Mr. Popular. Uh, the masses don't like him and they don't like him not because of his previous you know, role of persecution. They don't like him because what he's been saying to these converts is you don't have to get circumcised, saying that to the men. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't, you don't really need to observe all of these dietary fads uh, that these uh, ultra Jews have in um, in Jerusalem and uh, Judea you don't really what you really need to do is believe in Jesus I've seen Jesus I had a vision uh, of Jesus and Jesus can talk directly to you you don't need priests you don't need arch priests uh, to tell you what the message of Jesus um, um, is so that story comes back uh, to Jerusalem. And what we have is a description by Paul himself uh, about uh, how he has to be smuggled out uh, by the James party out of Jerusalem uh, to ensure his safety, right? So uh, this is his own description um, of uh, the brother and brothers of Jesus and what they believed and what their thought world was, as opposed to the emerging belief system uh, that uh, Paul uh, represents. Anyway, to cut a long story uh, short, because I've already spoken for three quarters of an hour and I don't want to um, out uh, uh, do it, to cut a long story short, um, after both Paul and uh, James are dead, in 66 AD, there's a, a Jewish revolt, and it proves to be remarkably successful. 
And it also proves in their own thought world to be almost miraculous because they actually ambush a, a Roman army that's retreating from Jerusalem. Why it's retreating from Jerusalem, I actually don't know. Might have been supply. I just don't know. Maybe it was popular resistance. I just don't know. Either way, uh, they're retreating from Jerusalem. This is a Roman army, you know, the most fearsome military machine in the world. And the zealot um, guerrilla forces massacre their rear guard. And only the head of the army uh, can escape. Um, and they basically think, Jesus Christ, we, we've done it. This is not quite miraculous because it was our guerrilla tactics. Either way, there's a general uprising. And um, Roman rule uh, comes to an end. Uh, but of course, the Romans are very quick to respond and they send a much more powerful um, army. And uh, what you get is precisely uh, people like Josephus going, well, to hell with this. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm swapping sides. Um, the, the revolution is squeezed in uh, to Jerusalem. So we don't know how big Jerusalem uh, was, but you know, if you said 100,000 people, it might, might be accurate. Um, um, and you could swell that, maybe you could double that size with uh, refugees coming in from the countryside. These are very rough figures. In, in the ancient world, they tended to exaggerate massively. Uh, numbers. Either way, uh, the revolution continues. And, and what's interesting about it is having initially been in the hands um, of people like Josephus, you know, rational, um, thinking, um, worldly uh, individuals, the revolution falls into the hands of the fourth party, uh, in particular, into the hands of various zealot. Um, these were sort of guerrilla fighters that have a religious um, uh, ideology. This was born, I think, something like 164 BC, um, that party. Um, either way, what happens is uh, they, they, <laughs> they do, <laughs> people might say, typical left. Uh, they break up into factions and they each defend their own wall. So Jerusalem has got a whole number of different walls, inner walls, outer walls. Uh, each faction and their rivals is def are defending their own bit of the wall. And the most militant faction uh, is actually Republican. Um, they don't want a God, um, a, a God chosen um, king. Uh, they don't take any instructions from kings or uh, any other human being. They only take instructions from God. They're also uh, committed, according to Josephus, to abolish slavery. Uh, they will not hold uh, uh, slaves. So these are uh, extreme radicals. Either way, uh, we know, again, this is all fully testified, not only by Josephus, not only by the archaeology, but by many other Roman and other contemporary uh, writers, that eventually uh, the Romans breach the walls. And I think it takes them weeks, weeks and weeks uh, to finally put down uh, Jerusalem. And they massacre and they take um, the handsomest uh, uh, um, fighters back. Uh, to Rome, where they ritualistically sacrifice them um, in the form. And you've seen the, the carvings of them carrying, you know, the holy symbols from the temple. Uh, they raise the place uh, as much as they can <laughs> to the ground. Uh, this is a, um, um, an object now of looting and rape. Uh, and that's what the Romans do. 
And what's interesting is that there's a story in the Talmud. Um, I mean, I don't know whether it's accurate, but the story is uh, that some, um, I call him a rabbi. I mean, I won't push my luck. Um, I just a teacher um, gets himself smuggled out and he presents himself, I think, to Vespasian, who's the future emperor. He, his father is the emperor Titus. He's been left in charge of doing down um, Jerusalem. He basically says, look, I'll refound uh, Judaism for you. And uh, some sort of deal is struck. Uh, the temple is destroyed. And it's from that date, we definitely know that, that the temple cult goes and modern Judaism uh, uh, comes forth. So we have uh, synagogues. Um, we don't have animal sacrifice. Uh, we don't have a central focus uh, of worship. We have uh, a localization um, um, of uh, the religion. So modern Judaism from all strands is born with the defeat uh, of the temple um, cult um, in AD 70. But also what is born um, is modern Christianity. Um, uh, various fragments of the Jesus party seem to have survived. And indeed you can find some elements of them throughout the Middle East, you know, some sort of watered down, some sort of um, refashioned uh, versions. But what really triumphs is the Paul party. Um, and they disassociate themselves uh, from the Jewish revolution. And you get a, then a writing um, of uh, the four modern gospels. And what's noticeable about all these four gospels is that this guy this, at the center of it, Jesus is portrayed as a pacifist. So um, I, I, I've got nothing to do with swords. I've got nothing with, to do with violence. You know, I'm not here to, don't resist evil. Uh, he's someone who's pro-Roman. Uh, the first person to recognize him being the son of God was the bloody centurion uh, there um, who's executing him. That's the first person who says, that, don't you know that, who that is? That's the son of God. <laughs> um, all the way through, we also have him um, mixing with prostitutes, drinking um, alcohol, all stuff. Uh, that we know James despised. James would never have mixed with prostitutes, would never have mixed with Romans unless he couldn't help it. Um, uh, boasted of his uh, lifelong virginity and also lifelong what we would call teetotalism. Um, so in the Bible, we have a Jesus that's uh, uh, pro-alcohol, first miracle, turning water to wine, someone who mixes freely, with the unclean, um, someone who um, uh, mixes with the Romans. And indeed, think about the last days of Jesus. Um, you know, there he is performing miracles. He thought the end of the world was about to come. He didn't succeed. He goes outside of the walls to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's one of his own. It's Judas, who's actually more likely to be one of his brothers that betray him, gives him a nice smacker on, on the cheek. Um, another one of his brothers gets out a sword because Jesus had said in the biblical account, two swords will be enough. Presumably they're expecting the angels to come from on high. Cuts off uh, the ear of uh, some servant. Jesus sticks it back on and says, no, we're not. in." Anyway, Jesus is um, humiliated. 
Um, he's put on trial and they have this strange ceremony, apparently, <laughs> don't believe it, um, of where um, Pontius Pilate, the, the chief Roman, is meant to abide by this um, um, ceremony. We'll free you a prisoner. Who do you want? Do you want Barabbas, the thief, or do you want Jesus? Uh, you know, the, the holy Jesus, who the crowds have just been proclaiming, remember, as he comes in on an ass, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah or someone else from the um, old, old books. But he's on an ass for religious reasons. They are proclaiming him to be son of David. He's going to bring uh, the, the rule of the Romans to an end. He seizes the temple. He clears out not the money lenders, but the corrupt Sadducee. A priesthood, the Romans shrug their shoulders. We can deal with this. This isn't a serious uprising. Maybe he's backed by um, the local zealot, um, you know, uh, there, no doubt. Either way, we have this trial before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate turns around and says, Who do you want? And the Jews say, We don't want Jesus. Kill him, take him away. And you even have the high priest saying, On our hands, his blood. Uh, will be with us and on our children's children's children. Uh, one of the blood um, libels, a curse on all Jews. Jews killed Jesus. And Pontius Pilate, remember, clean, cleans his hands and said, well, it's not on me. So it's the Jews that are responsible, according to the Bible, for the death of one of their liberation fighters. The Romans had no responsibility. After all, what could they do? The Jews had demanded his death uh, and they just the, the point would be that although um, Nero and various emperors did persecute the Christian church, um, clearly there was a need uh, in the ancient Roman world, a declining social system for such a religion and eventually uh, culminating in um, Constantine, a deal uh, is done. And although Constantine doesn't convert until his uh, until his you know final breaths because he's tortured and killed and done all sorts of horrible things so he can be forgiven and go to heaven because he's at last repented, basically what you have is a deal where the church, which has become a material force with vast estates, um, um, is allowed to become second fiddle uh, in the Roman Empire. It is incorporated into the official ideology of the Roman Empire. And it's precisely Paul's redacted, um, highly edited uh, version of the Jesus story, which becomes the official doctrine. But of course, what we've got there, because so, so many of these stories are well known, they can only go so far uh, with it. It's a bit like if you take Stalin, um, you know, he did a very good job on Trotsky, Kamenev, Zinoviev, uh, but he could only go so fast. He still had in Russia, I'm not equating it, but you still had the collected works of Lenin, which in the main, they never dared to doctor, you know. So we have elements uh, of that remaining in the Bible and the key is uh, to know which is nonsense, um, what's probable, and why the nonsense was introduced and the significance. We need to tease out the significance of the nonsense, certainly not dismiss it as just made up. It is made up, but ideology um, has its own uh, life and its own power and its own significance. Anyway, with that, 
I shall um, wish you a happy, um, what did they call it? Um, Yuletide Xmas Roman Saturnalia end of year celebration. Thank you, Stan. <laughs>